0: you let me encourage you to remember these announcements and remember the upcoming events at our church we're very excited about them i would also like to encourage us all to remember the uh, snelling family i was asked to speak at the memorial service for richard the father and patriarch of that family who passed away a couple of weeks ago and uh, the family is in a lot of grief as you might imagine so let's remember the snelling family in our prayers john chapter 12 John the gospel of John chapter 12 this was not written by John the Baptist John the Baptist wrote no books in the Bible this was written by John the apostle same John who wrote the book of Revelation John was the only apostle that lived to be to a ripe old age some believe he lived to be around 90 92 years old John chapter 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover, and the the message is what really happened the last week of Jesus' life. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, a very expensive perfume. In fact, this jar of nard was worth about a year's wages. So in America today, this jar of nard would be worth $52,700 and something dollars on an average basis. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, John is the only gospel author who names Judas as the one who was offended by this. He objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus replied, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor but you will not always have me. I want to look at the events that happened the last week of Jesus' life. And last week we talked about his prophecy starting in Matthew 24. If you want to know what the end times are going to look like in an encapsulated form, read Matthew 24 and then 25 and 26 are illustrative examples of readiness and the suddenness with which end time events will come upon us. So he warned us about the future was something that Jesus did. The second thing is a woman basically gave everything she owned to Jesus. One of the the Gospels writes that she broke the jar, which means it was irretrievably given. If you keep the jar whole, you can always stop pouring. You can always keep some back. But when you break the jar, there's no way to retrieve it. Many people in these days didn't, didn't have cash, money, and Currency the way we do. They, they exchanged their business affairs in, in animals and livestock and possessions and barter. And one of the ways that a woman could barter or could have savings that people might not readily realize what was in there. Somebody comes in your house, they want to rob you, they're looking for money. But who's going to think about perfume? It was really smart what she did to save a very expensive perfume and keep collecting it over a year Or over several years, it was worth a year's wages, but over several years, she probably collected this. And she had saved it up. And instead of keeping it for herself, when Jesus came, somehow she felt so moved that she took her life savings and she broke the jar and she poured it on Jesus' feet and she wiped his feet with her hair. And the fragrance of that perfume went all the way through the house. My friend and I, Jack, were in college... And for some reason, both of us had kept all the Old Spice bottles that everybody had ever given us. <laughs> Neither one of us wore Old Spice, but we had eight bottles of Old Spice on our, on our little counter. One morning, Jack decided, Roland, you need to wear Old Spice today. We're standing in there, and we just got out of the shower, so we're standing in there all natural in the room, trying getting ready to get dressed, for and it's finals. Jack says, you need to wear this Old Spice. I said, Jack, I'm not wearing Old Spice. He said, oh, come on, man. He popped it open, and I thought to myself, this is getting ready to go bad. <laughs> he said, come on, man. He put some on his finger. I said, Jack, don't put the Old Spice on me. And He grabbed the bottle and just went gloop, and just gloop me with Old Spice. And the fragrance of the perfume filled the house. Well, I grabbed the bottle, and he dashed a run out the door. So here we go. I'm chasing Jack down the hallway, squirting him with Old Spice. He's squirting Old Spice over his shoulder. Old Spice is all over the walls, all over the floor, all over us. Every place it hit paint, the paint just peeled right down off the wall. It got in our hair and it made our hair stiff like like gel or spritz or something. It was amazing stuff. And we smelt like the Old Spice factory. Well, by the time we got back to the room, we realized it's 724, final start in six minutes. We didn't have a chance to take a shower. We just threw our clothes on and went to class. As I walked down the aisle, I I heard the people behind me going, (laughs) It was amazing. But this woman gave Jesus everything she owned. And you could smell it. Man, the spirit of sacrifice has a fragrance about it. It smells beautiful. It smells like selflessness. It smells like giving. Conversely, the spirit of selfishness has an odor about it, but it's not beautiful. Somewhere between a dead armadillo on the side of the road and something your dog left you as a present. Selfishness is terrible, but selflessness is a beautiful thing. I want to put something in your spirit now, and I want you to remember this. As we go through our lives, I believe one of the most significant battles that always rages within us is the battle between servanthood and selfishness. I believe that's a battle that is always waging in our hearts and our minds. Am I going to be a servant, or am I going to be selfish? Am I going to serve people, or am I going to use people? Am I going to genuinely care about people? We throw the word love around a lot, and and it's it's become almost abused, I think. But am I going to really care about people? Or am I going to just act like I care about people? And deep inside, I really couldn't care less. Now, I know this is above the, the kiddies in here, and I'll get to them in a minute. But guys, listen. Romans 12 says a little short statement that I want us to hear today, and it's powerful. It says, love must be sincere. Sincere. Now, I just want you to listen to this, and this this comment stands on its own. If you or I or whoever, if we really have an issue caring about other people, I'm I'm not talking about just your family or people you like. I'm talking about, in general, human beings, the lost, the people out there in the world. If we as Christians really just in our heart of hearts, and, and nobody knows this but you, me, Nobody knows the way we feel. Nobody can judge it. It It's something that's completely held in secret within our hearts. But this is is a litmus test of your your walk with God and of your calling, I believe, in ministry. If in our heart of hearts we really don't care about other people except the people that like us, we really don't have that that concern. I'm not talking about just to get them in church so we can count them and fill up seats and, and get tithe money and stuff. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if we don't really care about other people, we need to stop and hit the pause button on our whole life and take a step back and decide what is going on with me. Because the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 4, God is what? Love. The Bible says, how can we claim to love God whom we have not seen and don't love our brother whom we have seen? And we say that, and we all agree with it, But I am going to ask you today here right at, on Palm Sunday right here close to the Easter season or Resurrection Day when, when the greatest act of love that's ever transpired on planet Earth took place, I'm going to ask all of us to look in our hearts and do a little inventory and do a little judging because nobody else can judge you but you can judge yourself and ask yourself, do I really love people? What a potent question. What an apropos issue to confront. What a powerful thing to ask yourself. Do I really love people? If you don't, if you, if you just honestly, truly, it's kind of a flat line, then I want to encourage you to just stop everything because nothing else matters. You can love God, but we've got to love what God loved. Jesus didn't die for his heavenly father He died for humanity. He died at the will of his heavenly father, but he died for humanity. We got to not just love God. We got to love what God loved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's got to be who we are. If we don't love people, we are not a reflection of Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you, and I know I want to get serious for a minute. I know that all of us in this room have been hurt by somebody more than once, disappointed more than once, by individuals, by groups, by families, by institutions, maybe even by the church, leadership, laity, whatever. We can all point to situations and circumstances in our lives where we got hurt. I'm not being callous or cold when I tell you this. Hear me in love. But the truth is, guys, hey, welcome to the human race. I mean, welcome to life. We're just going to get hurt here, rubbing elbows with other people. We can't let those events steer us around in our hearts. We've got to take control of how we respond to life. We've got to grab the reins of our own emotions, our own decision-making, our own volition, our own spirit, and we've got to put those reins and that bit in the mouth of our own directionality, and we've got to get right on track with the will and purpose and work of God. And sometimes that means just sucking it up, put on your big boy britches, your big girl pants, and... Keep on going, hurt or not. I was reading a story about a a Navy SEAL the other day. He was shot 27 times and had shrapnel blown up on him four different times in one incursion, and he killed the four terrorists who were attacking him and then walked back to the transport for exfiltration. Man, you just got to say, you the man, you know. We've got to be tough like that. I'm not saying you've got to go to seal school, buds, but I am saying as Christians, we've got to have a tough enough skin that, that rubbing elbows with other people doesn't cause us to become fearful of engagement. That doesn't cause us to want to retreat into a bubble of self-preservation. We've got to be willing to make ourselves vulnerable and expose our hearts to people, and if they hurt us, they hurt us. Because the truth is, we might win some to Jesus Christ. And if we win one... That's worth all the pain we've ever been through. Now, this woman did a beautiful thing to Jesus. But listen, as surely as you do something beautiful for God, don't expect everybody to applaud. Even one of his own disciples, Judas Iscariot, got mad and offended and upset and and vexed over this whole thing. Why? Why? I've got a better idea. Listen, somebody's always got a better idea than God, you know? I've got a better idea, he said. That money could have been sold, a perfume could have been sold, the money given to the poor. Oh, doesn't that sound so noble? How greedy, how selfish, how wasteful to take that perfume and pour it on the feet of Jesus. My goodness, we could have done something better with that money. The best thing that we can do with any resource we have is to do what God's will is, whether that makes sense to us or not. And Judas was upset about it because he, he was selfish. He wanted the money in the bag so that he could pilfer it and steal from it, based, based on what John said. So Jesus warned us about the future, and a woman gave him everything she owned, and one of his closest friends got offended by it. Now, it's easy for us to be offended by stuff, especially when one person gets treated special. You know what the Bible says about Jealousy. It says it's as cruel as the grave. You know what the Bible says about envy? It says it rots the bones. All right, every kid who's in children's church, I want you to get out of your seat and come stand up here across the front right now. Come on. Every kid, come on. All of you, come on. Everyone. No, just stand right down there, sweetie. I like that. There you go. Everyone. Everyone, there you go. Okay, I want all of you to close your eyes. Well, you can open your eyes and look at me real quick. I have a special award. This is the Amazing Kid Award for Palm Sunday. It's a peppermint candy. Man, that peppermint candy is so good. This one's fresh. It's just laced with sugar. It's got that little tang of peppermint to it. You open that wrapper, you peel it off that candy, you put it in your mouth, and it begins to slowly melt on your tongue and that delicious peppermint. You can just smell it. It just runs down the back of your throat. It mm, it tastes so sweet and so good. That's just like one of the best candies. This is our best kid of the day award. Best kid of the day. Now, to whom do I give this? Which one of you deserves this? If you think you deserve this, raise your hand. I want this. Raise your hand. Okay? How many of you don't care? You don't care. Okay. We got some apathetic ones. We got some that want it, and then they don't care, too. I think that's Christians. Okay? Okay. What if I... Now don't go sit down now. But what if I just give this to you? You're you. You're just the kid of the day. Everybody give her a hand. Tell everybody your name. Callie. Callie. How old are you, Callie? Seven. Seven? You like peppermint candy? You do? Okay, you know you can't eat it in here, right? Okay. How do you feel about that? You think she should get it? That's good. How do you feel? Well, they're saying the right stuff. They know they're in church. (laughs) She said she should get it. How do you feel about that? I would just let her have it. You would just let her have it. So you have to give me permission. Okay. A little control freak over here. Okay. So, how many of you still wish that you could get a peppermint candy, not just her? Raise your hand. I want one too, Pastor. How many of you think it kind of would be unfair if I gave her a candy and didn't give you a candy? Raise your hand. Not really fair. Yeah, not really fair, is it? Y'all stay right here. Now listen, this whole idea of it's not fair can get all of us into a whole bunch of trouble. It wasn't fair for Jesus to live a sinless life, for him to be perfect, and then for him to be beaten and tortured and crucified. It wasn't fair. It wasn't fair for a perfect man, a perfect son of God, to give himself a ransom for many. It wasn't fair. It wasn't fair for all the things that happened in his life that he conquered and overcame at the end of it all to be ridiculed and mocked and spat on. None of that was fair. It wasn't fair for God to have to sacrifice his son to redeem us. But even though it wasn't fair, God did it anyway. Thank God that God didn't try to play fair, that he just loved us in spite of ourselves. Now, the truth is, I'm going to give each one of you your own little piece of candy, so grab one. You don't want one? You like car- you like carrots and celery? Okay, that's great. Hey, I admire that. Okay, you already got one. There you go. Now this is this is you. Oh wow, one of them said thank you. You don't like peppermints? Okay, you're welcome. There you go, and there you go. Now, don't eat it in church, and make sure you ask your parents if you can have it and when you can have it, because they don't want you to have that at 9.30 this evening. <laughs> Give our kids a hand, and y'all can go back to your seats. Now, I want to read on in this passage, because I want to kind of walk through What happened to Jesus the last week of his life? Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The raising of Lazarus from the dead, in my opinion, was one of the most important things that accelerated Jesus to Calvary. Because it was a miracle that could not be explained away. It could not be denied. The man had been dead for four days. And when Jesus said, roll the stone away, and he said, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus walked out of that tomb, you talk about news? Man, that news spread across Palestine like wildfire. Everybody found out Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He'd been dead for four days. Now, see, let me just stop here and and explain something to all of us. Sometimes we we don't understand God's timing in our lives. Sometimes we don't understand why things don't happen now or when we think they should or as quickly as they ought to or the way they ought to. It would be so easy for God to just do A or for God to just do B. And God does neither. And we sit there waiting and wondering, what's God doing? Lazarus' sisters came to Jesus And said, Lazarus is sick. He may not live. And Jesus stayed where he was for two more days. Now, he could have gone straight to where Lazarus was and healed him, right? Before he died. Instead, Jesus hangs out for two more days. Nowhere in Scripture are we given any legitimate reason for the delay. At the end of those two days, Lazarus dies. Now, Jesus could have gone on, but he didn't. So by the time Jesus makes his way there, and by the time he gets in front of Lazarus' tomb, Lazarus has been dead four days. Now, it makes no sense to let that happen when you could have prevented the whole thing. He could have stopped all that grief. He could have have prevented all that loss and all that sorrow. Jesus could have stopped Lazarus from dying, could have healed him. It would have been a great testimony. But it would not have been anywhere near the testimony of, of Jesus healing Lazarus before he died compared to Jesus raising him from the dead four days after he died. God knew what he was doing. And when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it was perhaps the greatest miracle in Jesus' ministry. But because it was irrefutable and because there was no way to explain it away, because there was no way to manipulate anything like that, The people plotted, the chief priests and the elders, they plotted to kill not only Jesus, but Lazarus as well. Let me tell you something about the world in which we live. The unregenerated spirit that is loose in this world does not just hate God, it hates his followers as well. Not just, not just hate Jesus, this unregenerated, evil, wicked spirit of sin and rebellion in the world. It doesn't just hate Christ. It hates all those whom Christ has raised from spiritual death to new life through salvation. And Jesus even said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me first. So let me encourage all of us today that when the timing of God doesn't make any sense... And when it seems that it would be so easy and we've got this thing figured out, here's how it ought to flow, here's how it ought to break down, this is what God could do, and we present this plan to God and we present this sequence of events that we've figured out and say, here you go, God, this makes great sense, it works out great with my schedule and my calendar, it'll be so wonderful if you'll just do it this way. And then it seems like God sits on his throne with his arms folded across his chest and totally ignores what you ask. Why does he do that? He does it because God has a better plan. God has a better idea. God is smarter than us. Amen? Amen. And he knows exactly what he's doing. Trust God in the timing of things when you don't know what the timing ought to be or even when you think you do. It's easier actually to trust God when you don't know what the timing ought to be than when you think you do know what it ought to be. We've got to trust God with these things. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Let me tell you something. The devil wants to kill your testimony. Lazarus was a powerful testimony to the the supremacy and lordship of Jesus Christ. Lazarus was a living, breathing testimony that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Son of God. The chief priests and elders just couldn't stand that. They didn't want this living testimony. People were coming from miles around to see Lazarus. They were asking him, what did it feel like being dead? I don't know. I was dead. What happened to you in the tomb? Not much. Was it dark? Yeah. What happened when you heard Jesus call you? I wish I could describe that to you. People came to ask Lazarus all these questions. He generated an incredible amount. This was the Super Bowl of early Palestine. You could have sold Dorito ads for a million bucks to talk to Lazarus, you know. People wanted to know it is never enough for God or I'm sorry. It is never enough for the enemy, Satan, to just cast aspersions at God because you and I represent the testimony of God's power because we represent the life giving glory of the blood of Jesus Christ. He wants to destroy us as well as he wants to war against the kingdom of God. So don't be surprised when people lie about you. Don't be surprised when they slander you. Don't be surprised when gossip has your name wrapped up in it. Don't be surprised when you're misrepresented and attacked. Because Satan despises and hates us because we are living, breathing testimonies to the goodness and the power and the glory and the saving ability of the blood of Jesus Christ. And Satan hates us, but it doesn't matter because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And it just is not going to stop or change one thing. No matter how mad the devil gets, we continue being living, breathing testimonies to the glory and goodness of God. Go ahead, that's all right. So, a woman gives Jesus everything she owns. One of his closest friends is offended. People plotted to kill him and Lazarus. And then one more thing happened. i read this to you. The next day, a great crowd had come for the festival. They heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Now, it's important that we understand what this means. In ancient Jerusalem... Israel, proper. You have Roman soldiers who are occupying Palestine. They're occupying Israel. Roman soldiers are in the streets. They're manning their post at their garrisons. They're all walking around policing, patrolling the area. They're always looking for insurrection and plots against the throne of Caesar. Jesus now comes into town riding on a little donkey... And everybody is laying palm branches down in front of him. And they're throwing their coats on the ground in front of him, which is something that you do for royalty. And the word Hosanna, literally translated, means save us now. So picture this. You've got Roman soldiers of different rank. They're standing up on the wall of their garrison, and they're looking at this. They're going, hey, check this out. Here's this guy coming into Israel on a donkey, which... Of course, you know, royalty comes in riding on their horses. They're throwing down palm branches and coats in front of them, and they're saying, save us now. This is the stuff of insurrection. This is the stuff of rebellion. This is the stuff that gets people executed by the authorities in power. And some of the people are even calling him king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Oh, king, save us now. Palm branches. Here's my coat. This was a big red flag to the Roman Empire. And along with raising Lazarus from the dead and the people saying, Hosanna to the king, save us now, this was more than the current contemporary social strata of that day could handle. Now, the people that were screaming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, here is the king of Israel. Some of those people, those same people, throwing down palm branches, throwing their coats in front of the the little donkey. Some of those same people just a few days later had a different song they were singing. They had a different chant. You know what it was? It was crucify him. Some of the same people that were in this crowd throwing down their coats and palm branches and saying, oh, king of Israel, save us now. Just a few days later we're saying, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. What can we learn from this? What can we learn from this? We can learn that the people's opinions that surround our lives just don't matter. I'm going to tell you something. You're never going to be free in your life till you get free from worrying about what other people think of you. There is no freedom apart from that. If you can ever get to the place where you just stop caring about what other people call you, what they think about you, what they say about you, if you can just get past that, then you can understand what freedom is all about. You kids in school, you kids in children's church, listen to pastor. It's so important that you learn to stand on your own two feet, that you learn to think for yourself, that you not be affected by peer pressure, and that means what other kids your age think about you. Let kids call you Susie Christian. Let them call you preacher boy. Let them call you names. It doesn't make any difference what people call you. All that matters is what God thinks of us. Amen? Amen. People's opinions just don't matter. God's opinion, that matters. I've done a lot of funerals over the years being in the ministry. I've seen a lot of people die. I've been at their bedside when they breathe their last. And one thing I've always noticed... At the funeral, if you, if you go to the graveside service, sometimes people walk up to the grave, and they don't always do this in funerals, but sometimes they do. It's not as common now as it used to be. They'll take a flower, and some people like to take a little bit of dirt, and they'll throw it in the grave as a sign of saying, you know, I love you, goodbye. But you know what I've discovered? Not one person at any funeral has ever crawled in the grave with their loved one who's gone. That's as far as they go. That's as far as people's opinions about you go too. From that point forward, only one person's opinion matters. And that's what does God think of me. Now I want you to remember that all your life. You might not fit into the popular group at school. It doesn't matter. You need to fit into God's group. You might not fit into the cool group of guys at work. It doesn't matter. Their opinions are going to hold no water. All that matters is that you fit in with God's expectation and his plan for your life. That's it. If we try to please men, Paul said in in Galatians, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's powerful stuff. And it's true in our lives. I want to wrap this up with some thoughts for you to think about. Kelly, if you can, come play. Dave, come play if if Kelly's back in the back. The attitude of sacrifice is always remembered in reverence, but the attitude of greed and selfishness is always remembered in revulsion. The woman poured the, the jar of nard on Jesus' feet, and Jesus said, for now and for the, for the future, for all time, wherever this story is told, this thing that she has done will be remembered as a beautiful thing. And here we are 2,000 years later, and it almost makes us cry to think about Mary pouring that nard on Jesus' feet as an act of selfless sacrifice. Sacrifice, servanthood. Remember I told you about the war? Servanthood, opposing selfishness. These are the two great forces that oppose within us, the two great wolves that battle within us. You know the old Indian story? The boy, the grandfather told his grandson, son, there are two wolves that fight inside us. One is good and one is evil. And the the grandson said, well, grandfather, which wolf wins? And the wise old grandfather said, the one you feed the most. There's a lot of power and wisdom in that. Let us all today decide in our hearts of hearts, that no matter what people have done to us, let us be like Christ and let us be forgiving. Let us be forbearing. Let us be gentle-spirited, soft around the edges of our heart. If you go through life with grudges and ill will and bitterness and anger, hatred, you're just making yourself miserable. One person said unforgiveness is like taking poison and expecting your enemy to die. It just doesn't work. The attitude of sacrifice is remembered in reverence, but greed and selfishness is remembered in revulsion. The people were jealous and envious of Jesus. The religious leaders of the day were so envious that the crowds were going over to him. They were so envious of his popularity. They were envious of his power. They hadn't raised the dead any time soon. The crowds were envious that Jesus had the power to do these miracles they were jealous they were envious they couldn't stand it they were saying the whole world's going over to him the bible says that envy and jealousy are as cruel as the grave it's the opposite of the spirit of jesus christ envy and jealousy are rooted in the same root and it's selfishness every evil thing in the world can be traced back to selfishness i say that to us a lot When you think about the cross of Jesus Christ Up on Calvary There is nothing selfish Anywhere around it It is all the spirit of servanthood The spirit of sacrifice The spirit of selflessness The spirit of love The spirit of giving How many of you I know a lot of you It's kind of an old show now But back in the 80's Star Trek The Next Generation How many of you watched that show a little bit one of my favorite characters on that show was uh, an alien named Q. And Q had all power. He could do anything. He was like God. And Q could just snap his fingers and make anything happen. He could go back in time, he could change the gravitational constant of the universe. He could do anything. There was no limit to Q's power. I've often asked myself, what if I had that kind of power? and here's some little person mouthing off at me or here's some guy cutting me off in traffic in Atlanta I know none of you have ever experienced that or you think back you, suddenly you wake up and you've got the power of Q you can do anything snap your fingers and it is so whatever you want that's the way it was in real life for Jesus Christ when he was hanging on the cross the Bible says he could have called down 12 legions of angels to destroy the world and set him free Now, he's hanging there, being tortured to death. He has never done anything wrong, never hurt one person, never committed any sin, never told a lie, never broke a law. He's lived a perfect, flawless, sinless life in in intentional sacrifice to the people around him who are spitting on him, who are mocking him. If you're really God, come down off the cross. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm just glad that wasn't me. When some little smart aleck had looked up and said, if you're really the son of God, come down off the cross. That would have probably been it for me. I'd have probably said, all right, watch this. (laughs) The good thing is Jesus forced himself to swallow his pride, forced himself not to use the power of God that was in him. He could have destroyed them all just with a thought. Instead, he forced himself to hang there and bleed out. Why? Why would he do that? It was not because he was weak. If he had come down off the cross and destroyed them all, that would have been weakness. It was because he was strong. His love for you and me, his understanding of what was necessary to buy our salvation was greater than his need to prove himself. Man, your, your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ loved you a lot. And he loves you today the same. the lust for power, it knows no bounds. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they hungered for power, and they were willing to kill to keep it. They were willing to kill not only Jesus, but Lazarus, who was Jesus' great testimony. Be careful, guys. Be be careful and beware of the lust for power that creeps into our lives. And it may not be great power like... To, to rule the world or be the president of a nation, but it may be power in an area, in a circle, in a in a dominion that we might have authority over. Be careful of the seductive ability of power. A lot of people in this world are already millionaires and billionaires, and they still want to run things in the country. And so it's not about the money, it's about the power. Beware, beware. The seductive ability. The seductive nature of power. Guard your heart against it. And why is power so seductive to humans? Because it's rooted in pride. It's rooted in selfishness. Even if we don't intend it to be the the seductiveness of power, it it says to us, I know best how to manage things. I know best what to do. I've got a better way, a better plan, a better idea. We've got to be very, very, very careful about our own lust for power in any area of our lives. But I want to close with this. All this that led up to this coming Friday where we celebrate the the crucifixion, if you can call it celebrate, on Good Friday, we remember the day that Jesus was crucified. All of it happened because Satan thought, I'll just kill this guy. I'll humiliate him publicly. I'll destroy his reputation. I'll prove to the world that he has no power. And I know part of this was God's plan too. But Satan devised all these things to engineer the death of Jesus Christ, to bring it to pass, to put in the hearts of the leaders of his day to make it happen. But what Satan intended for our harm, God turned around and made fantastic for us. Let me tell you something. What Satan intends for your harm, God can make good out of it. I said what Satan intends for your harm, God can make good out of it. It's just up to us as to how we respond to what happens in our, in our lives. Don't let opposition make you run away from it. Run toward it. Don't make difficult mountains cause you to cower at the foot of the hill and refuse to climb, grab the first rock, heave yourself up and get on the way because flat places don't make good mountain climbers. Calm seas don't make good sailors. Shadow boxing doesn't make great fighters. Soldiers who practice with swords don't become great warriors. It's the actual conflict. It's the actual engagement that forces us to grow, to expand, to learn, to do something better and greater than what we've ever done before. Don't you be afraid of what Satan's trying to do. Don't you be afraid of the enemy's plans. Don't you be afraid of what people say and what people want to do. God has an idea. God has a plan. God knows exactly what he's doing. And when our lives don't make any sense and circumstances don't mesh and the timing seems off and everything seems wrong, rest and know that God has got you right here. And he knows what he's doing. Satan thought, if I can kill this guy, hang him on a cross, humiliate him in public. Philippians even talks about that he was humiliated on the cross and it was a glorious, glorious thing. What Satan tried to do to destroy Christ only served to fulfill the promise of God that he would pay the price for our sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The next time your life seems opposed by people talking about you, opposing you, making life difficult, rest in the fact that God has a plan. You might not even know what that plan is, but God does. Now I'm talking about people whose lives belong to Christ. This this is not true for just the general public. This is God's people. You face an opposition, God's got a plan. When things get tough, God's got a plan. What does Romans say? We know that he is always working for our good for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes no matter what's going on in our lives god is always working for our good Now i don't know about you but that's powerful stuff to me in this last week of jesus life i want you to think about the treachery one of his own close personal friends and not only did judas get offended about the perfume and he used to want to steal the money out of the bag. That's the thing that motivated him. He went from that incident straight to the, to the leaders of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the elders and the Sanhedrin and asked them, how can I betray Jesus and what will you pay me to betray him? Worked out a deal to betray his Lord all over an offense. People are going to be offended by you sometimes. They're going to be hurt. They're going to be upset. They're going to be vexed. They're going to be sideways with you. Don't sweat it. God has a plan. And what what the devil paints as destruction and dismay, God can make into a beautiful thing. If we'll just trust him, if we'll just walk in his peace, if we'll just have the spirit of servanthood, if we will feed the part of us that says, I'm going to love the unlovable. I'm going to give till it hurts. I'm going to serve when I don't really feel like serving. I'm not going to return evil for evil. I'm going to return good for evil. I'm going to go the extra mile to be a servant to people. Even when it seems to me they don't deserve it, I'm going to do it anyway. Now you're talking about the spirit and the attitude of Jesus Christ. Let's all stand. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to ask you the most penetrating question of your life. And yet the power of this question is in its simplicity. In that we all know the answer to it the moment it's asked. And the question is very simple. I've asked it here many times and I will again many times. The question is, is Jesus Christ really Lord of your life? Are you living a Christian life? The night before Richard Snelling passed away, I was at his bedside in the hospital. He was unconscious, non-responsive. The family said, we want you to baptize him. You can't really immerse somebody who's had surgery and hooked up to all these tubes and water. And we believe in immersing. So I said, well, we'll just have to do what we have to do. I'll get some water in a cup and we'll sprinkle it on his head this time because it's symbolic anyway. It's really all we can do. Before I did that, I went over to him and I looked at him in in his closed eyes and breathing very erratically. And I said, Richard, and instantly he snapped awake and looked right at me. He said, Pastor Roland, just as clear as I am right now. And I said, Richard, I need to ask you a question. He said, okay. I said, Richard, is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? Have you really surrendered your life to Christ? He said, yes, sir. He said, all is right between me and God. I've given my life to Jesus. And he closed his eyes and went right back out. But in those few moments of lucidity, he was able to affirm to me that he had, he had given his life to Jesus Christ. But here's the problem with that. All of us don't get that opportunity. We don't have, we don't have the luxury of, of laying in a bed somewhere and having someone come and, and, and having time to talk and think about these things. Sometimes we're, we're taken out into eternity like a flash of light. Like the rapture is going to take place. The Bible says that faster than you can blink your eye. You can blink your eye. And it takes one twentieth of a second to blink your eye or one. I think it's 1 or 1 of a second. It's a real fast thing to blink your eye. And that's how fast the rapture is going to happen. So I want to ask you today. The same question I asked Richard. And that is, is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I want you to consider the week that we're in now is called Holy Week. And Jesus went through so much. The accusations, the rumors, the slander, the gossip, the lies the plots, and yet he persevered for you and for me. For him to hang on that cross and allow those men to torture him to death with the power to destroy them all and prove them wrong was the greatest act of love the world has ever known. And he did it for you 2,000 years later in this building, in this moment, right now. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'm going to ask you, is Jesus Lord of your life? If he's not, you know it. And that's the simplicity of this question. You know the answer right now. I'm going to count to three. And with with your eyes closed, if you know that you're really not living a Christian life, you know it in your heart of hearts, you know it because you, you have these conduct issues, these attitudes, these relationships, whatever it is, you know there's sin that's operative in your life. It's there. You can't deny it to yourself. Nobody else may know, but you know and God knows. And that's all that matters. So I'm going to ask you when I count to three, if there's sin in your life, simply to lift your eyes and look at me. But I don't want you to do this unless you mean business with God. If you mean business with God, then I want you to do it. I'm not going to call you out or identify you. I just want you to get real with God. So I'm going to count to three right now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And if you know there's sin in your life, just lift your eyes and look at me. One, two, three. Lift them up right now. I see yours. I see yours. Praise God for you. Lift them up. I see yours. Thank you for that. Are there others? Lift them up. This is your moment. God brought you here today just for this. I see yours. But I'm going to say a prayer right now. I want every one of us in this building to pray it out loud. Behind me and you guys who lifted your eyes and looked at me, if it was your first time or if it was several times you've dealt with these issues in your life, I want you to know that God loves you. He doesn't want you to go into eternity without Christ. He doesn't want you to go to hell. He doesn't want you to face that. The Bible says that, Hell itself was built for the devil and his angels. He never intended for any of us to go there. So all of this is about God loving you and me enough to save us. So I'm going to pray it out loud, and you pray it behind me, and the key is to mean this with all your heart. So everybody, pray it out loud just like this. Heavenly Father, you know all about my sin. I confess it all. But more than just confess... I repent. Jesus, come into my heart. Wash me clean by your blood. Forgive me of my sin. Help me to never go back to any sin, but from this moment forward to live my life to please you. I'm yours now, Jesus, and you're my Lord. Thank you for a brand new me. Can we give God praise in the house for that now? Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for these beautiful people. I pray that the words that have been shared here today, the last events of the last week of Jesus' life, would powerfully speak to us about the spirit of servanthood and the spirit of sacrifice versus the spirit of greed and the spirit of power and control the spirit of self-will, and the spirit of offense. Help us to understand the dynamic differences, the polar opposites, the complete separation between love and selflessness and sacrifice, servanthood, and the other extreme, which is greed and power and self- selfishness and envy and jealousy. And let us always be willing to pay whatever price is necessary to find ourselves with the heart of a servant, with a spirit of sacrifice, with love and concern for others, operative in our lives. And I pray that we will remember that no matter what seems to oppose us, if we love you and are called according to your purposes, you have a plan. You are working that plan. Even when it seems like the timing is all wrong and things have gone from bad to worse and you don't see any rhyme or reason, Lord, help us to remember that you have a plan. No matter what we see, you have a plan. And we've got to trust in it because whatever the devil's trying to do to bring us harm, you will always turn to bring us good. And we thank you now and we praise you for it. In the mighty name of Jesus, all the people said,